Welcome to Episode 2, the thrilling sequel to Episode 1 of Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxe, and today I'm happy to share this special episode with you. This is a show where we talk about mainly history and mostly Maine. But every now and then, unlike those Rhode Islanders with the I Never Leave Rhode Island bumper stickers on their car, we travel farther afield. And sometimes, we can't resist the opportunity to grab onto the coattails of some passing popular news story and make a good episode out of it. Today, we're talking about a controversy over the mail that raised tempers and captured the attention of the American public well over a century ago. It's not a local story, it's a national one. Today's story is fascinating in its own right, as we speak to Rebecca Brenner Graham, who studies the fierce campaign against the U.S. Postal Service delivering the mail on Sunday, which it did for over a hundred years before ending in 1912. This issue inspired surprisingly intense passions, and this earlier mail controversy can reveal how Americans thought about the separation of church and state, and, as we'll see, provide insights into the mobilization of diverse religious minorities over the issue in American political and social life. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night will stop this episode now, even if you are listening on a Sunday. My guest today is Rebecca Brenner-Graham. She's a PhD candidate in history at American University. She's a history teacher at an all-girls college prep boarding school in Northern Virginia. You have probably read her contributions, if you were choosing wisely, to the Washington Post in the Made by History section. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ian. I'm excited about your new podcast. Thanks so much. So let's get right to it. And I warn you, I might try to push the envelope a bit with some bad mail puns. <laughs> um, hopefully I'll get oh boy, your- here we go. Will I get your stamp of approval? Huh? Uh. I know, I know, I'm sorry. The delivery was all wrong. Okay, so let's get it right to good. it. <laughs> let's, let's get right to it. Okay, so you chose to study a very specific aspect of American history involving the Postal Service. What precisely is the focus of your research these days? My dissertation is on Sunday Mail. I came into grad school not to do postal history, though I would now consider myself to be a postal historian. I came in to study religion-state relations in the early U.S., and it turns out that one of the most significant controversies of religion-state was the Sunday Mail controversy. And I literally researched this for months during coursework before I even realized almost by accident that Sunday Mail continued until 1912. So my dissertation now traces the, the long Sunday Mail controversy from 1810 when it started through 1912 when Sunday Mail ended. Now I have to ask you on a personal note, these days, the post office is all over the news, and these days being late August of 2020. Uh, has this been uh, bringing a lot more attention to your research? Is this something that you, in, in a certain way, feel good about professionally? 
Um, I mean, of course, my first concern is that the president appears to be exploiting the federal government's control over mail to sabotage the election, which is deeply concerning. Also, I have at least one good friend who works in the post office. Like these are real people whose lives are being affected. In terms of my personal day to day, it was like a phenomenological switch to have my dissertation and the world be separate and then to suddenly have them all be the same story because everything happening now is a continuation of this long postal history. And has there been, uh, has your work been appearing in other podcasts or, or printed outlets, or I should say, well, nobody prints online outlets in response to this, or is mainly history the first? Are we scooping you? We are um, the third, but only the second different venue. Uh, I was interviewed twice by a journalist historian named Matt Rosa for Salon. The first time was about connections between the post office and democracy and how the post office is important for democracy. I think what I contributed specifically was that you can tell the whole story of the United States through the post office. That's how important it is. And then the second article, which came out a couple of days later, which I actually um, even preferred, was on the topic of people buying stamps to save the post office. And I basically said, yes, I support the movement to buy stamps. Like, that is wonderful. Don't stop buying stamps. But this is a big government issue, and the post office has always been federal, and therefore you need federal action to solve it. That's a good point. Now, the story of the post office is a, is a federal one from the beginning. The post office, as you know, but many, many of our listeners may not. States. Very true. Very true. So the post office, well, let's just backtrack. The post office predates the United States. And so what are the origins of the U.S. Postal Service? So I want to make extra clear that my dissertation doesn't start until 1810, but um, Joe Edelman, the historian, he published a book last year called Revolutionary Networks, and it's about print culture and the importance of the post office during the American Revolution. So mail was sent since the colonial era. And then in 1775, Ben Franklin is appointed postmaster during the American Revolution. And what Edelman argues is that newspaper editors contributed significantly to the political issues and the discourse throughout the revolutionary period. And then mail's role was facilitating that spread of information. So by the time we get to 1810, when my research starts, there is, oh, and then sorry, the Post Office Act of 1792, big deal, and we can get more into that. But by the time my research starts in 1810, we have a strongly established post office. And then also the second great awakening, really uh, lighting up the other side of it, the religious movements. Now backtracking, the post office is in the Constitution, which is a big deal considering how short the U.S. Constitution is. They left a lot of things out there, but they included a post office. Why were the framers of the U.S. Constitution so intent on enshrining the post office in the governing document of this new nation? It had a monopoly on communication. 
but that, because there was no other technology to bring information across vast distances. But the real answer to that is Joe Edelman's argument that I mentioned about how mm -hmm. central it was to American revolutionary development. You study a time when the U.S. Postal Service became the center of an intense ideological battle over, of all things, whether the mail would be delivered on Sunday. Yes. What starts this debate? Well, the long answer is that we have the Post Office Act of 1792 expanding and federalizing the delivery service. And then the second great awakening made people more passionate about the Christian Sabbath. But those lead to an inciting incident, which is in 1809, there's a local postmaster named Hugh Wiley in Washington County, Pennsylvania. And he was responsible for delivering mail there and for uh, overseeing the other people who did and for facilitating that but he was also a practicing Christian. He happened to be a Presbyterian. And the Presbyterians told him that if he delivered mail on Sundays, then he was not allowed to be an official Presbyterian anymore. Like they literally voted on it oh. and said that he could not. So the federal government is telling him that he must deliver mail seven days a week. And his local Presbyterian branch of the church is telling him, you will lose your religious affiliation if you do your job. And so while this was a really difficult problem for Mr. Postmaster Hugh Wiley, what it became even more was it was like a rallying cry for the political actors who had a lot of fuel building up. And they drew on this one local story of this guy in Washington County, Pennsylvania, and they coordinated massive petition drives. To clarify one of the terms you used, you talked about a second Great Awakening. This is something that many of our audience might not be clear on, on what exactly that was. Could you quickly just fill us in on what the second Great Awakening was? Yes. And I'm, I always try to be careful about the language here, um, partially just because like, I'm not a Christian, I'm Jewish, and I don't want to sound disrespectful towards any religions. But my understanding is that, well, the first Great Awakening was in colonial times. And then the Correct. second Great Awakening started in the 1790s, I think technically in Kentucky, but it was spreading east right around the time that the post office was becoming really important and widespread. And then these two collided. During the Second Great Awakening, the ways that historians tend to describe it is like people became more passionate and visceral about their Christianity as opposed to really close theological studies of texts. It was more right. an emotional thing. Yeah, and there were big rises in membership in particularly in denominations that were more emotive. So the Methodists and the Baptists benefited a lot from this and, and perhaps less so, you know, the Anglicans, or I should say Excellent Episcopalian point. by this point. So thank you for, for filling us in there. So you talk about this massive, and, go ahead. Oh, can I clarify one more yes. point on that? Thank you for clarifying that. So I mostly don't study Christians, and I want to quote uh, a Jewish newspaper editor named Isaac Leeser, who wrote, it is not for us to interfere in the domestic quarrel of the Christian church. As far as we are concerned, they are all alike. So I am not identifying with that position, 
but a lot of my research is about how religious minorities perceived the dominant Sunday male controversy. So I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask if there is this big wave of, of resistance to the Sunday mail delivery, this sounds like the brewings of something of what we might today call a culture war. And so if, if you could, who was who on each side of this debate? I wouldn't call it a culture war. Okay. Honestly, because I feel like a culture war is when there are really two sides, but there's a lot of overlap. For example, William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, he was for continuing mail on Sundays, Hmm. but he was also a practicing Christian who was an abolitionist. Whereas some of the more traditional Sunday agitators most of them were also anti-slavery, but they were also anti-Sunday male. And they wanted Christianity to be a national religion, and they also wanted to end slavery. So the lines get very messy. There tend to be a lot of, um, I think we call them odd bedfellows situations where it's like, wait, why are they allied with them? Okay. Which groups are defending the Sunday mail service? Is it the the religious minorities and the non-practicing people? So in terms of defending Sunday mail delivery, the most vocal are the Jeffersonian Republicans and also their like political ideological descendants. So they wanted to continue mail delivery seven days a week. One reason for that is that in many cases, they were not doing their own mail delivery. They had the people that they enslaved carrying their mail. So it's a lot easier to say, let's continue mail delivery seven days a week if you don't actually have to do your own work. Mm. But then, and here's where the odd bedfellows comes in, is that the Jeffersonian Republicans built strong alliances with the religious minorities. So also the very small but very vocal Jewish population in the early United States was adamant about Sunday laws generally at a local level. So they did not want Sunday to be the national Sabbath. And their correspondence with literally Thomas Jefferson is really interesting because Jefferson was like interested in their religions and perspectives. And then when you get Protestants from New England trying to correspond with these Jewish leaders. John Adams, for example, sounds like extremely uncomfortable. I mean, maybe John Adams just sounded that way in all his writing. I don't know. We'd have to ask Sarah Giorgini on that. Uh, Clear. That's yes. historical. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the, the New England Protestants because this issue in terms of religious intensity often surprises my students when they learn that in the, in the early 1800s, the region of the country with the most robust Sunday laws and the only states that continue to have a state-supported church are the New England states like Connecticut and Massachusetts. And that if you're going to ask an American in 1810 or so, you know, if you said, where's the Bible Belt, if you were going to make up a term for that, that we use today, well, the Bible Belt in 1810 might have run through the Connecticut River Valley, not through some part of the Southeast. Hmm, I think of it as Pennsylvania as well. It gets really complicated. 
it gets really complicated because there's major activity happening happening in Pennsylvania. This was the topic of my sheer paper last summer, Society okay. Historians, Early American Republic. And this is surprising because Pennsylvania had the most radical state constitution in 1776 in terms of separating church from state. So that's why I see a lot of the church-state controversy in Pennsylvania as backlash against disestablishment. That makes sense. Do the professionals working at the post office get involved directly? Yes, increasingly over time. Or I shouldn't say, it's not that the portion of them that's active directly increases over time, it's that the postal the post office establishment itself, it wasn't called USPS until the 70s, but the post office department expands over the course of the 19th century. And then there's just more people to get involved. And also the way that the agency works changes over time. So Sunday Mail ended in 1912. And right before that, the year before, first assistant postmaster general Granfield was his last name, corresponded with all of the local postmasters across the country. Of course, not all of them responded, but the ones that did fill three boxes of paper at the National Archives in downtown DC. So the people who were actually responsible for delivering mail on the ground were deeply involved in national policy. Now, you mentioned this, this debate lasts for little over a century. How did the controversy change over time? That is an excellent question. And I just want to back up for a second and clarify that the traditional Sunday Mail controversy itself was only during the early Republic. But one of my two major okay. interventions with my own scholarship is one, that the story of Sunday Mail is longer and two, that the story of Sunday Mail is about all these different people, enslaved people and religious minorities and the Seventh-day Christians. They were very involved. I haven't mentioned them yet. And so I thought that those were two different interventions. But what I've been finding is that it was longer because of the more people who were involved, that this lasted longer for them. So that brings me to your question, which is how did it change over time? And communications technology was always a backdrop. I used the phrase before monopoly on communication. The post office in the early U.S. was like the number one way that people transported information. Gradually over time, that was not the case. People still need the mail. I mean, they still need the mail today. But so that's one change that's sort of in the backdrop. But then the major changes are the diversification of the American population. So massive waves of immigrants from Europe who are many times not Christian, who are many times Jewish. Also, the Seventh-day Baptists, who I should have mentioned earlier because of the religious minorities, they were the, they were the most vehemently opposed to the movement to end Sunday Mail. They branched off and expanded into the Seventh-day Adventists in 1863. So then at the end of the 19th century, there's this whole bigger group who really wants to continue Sunday Mail. And then the last major change, which is kind of twofold, is just the expansion of rights and equality through the abolishment of slavery and through women's movements. So there just becomes more people who have a vested interest in this controversy. Does the rise in political power of 
Black Americans and these immigrant groups and increasingly American women as well. Does that change the parameters of the, of the debate? Absolutely. Could you perhaps give an example? Yes, it transforms them. So oh, Black, I will be looking into the Black postal unions. They were like the heart of union political tactics in the late 19th century. Okay. So um, when there were Sunday agitators who wanted to end all work on Sundays, one of the groups that they targeted was the Black postal unions because they wanted more people on their side. Okay. And they saw them as a target. And then as for the religiously diverse immigrants, much like how the Sunday agitation in the early U.S. was backlash to local disestablishment of church mm -hmm. and state, in the early 20th century, it was trying to reclaim Christian nationalism in the face of increasing diversity. So is that why in 1912, the U.S. stopped Sunday mail delivery? That was a big reason. Not the reason why the government finally gave in to the agitators, but it was a huge reason why the agitators wanted to in the first place. And so if I can go back to my term agitators for a second, so that's sure. not really what I call them. That's what I've been calling them so far in this conversation, because that's what the Seventh-day Christian activists of the early 20th century sometimes used to describe these people who wanted to end Sunday mail. But I use a term which is also from the Seventh-day Christians, uh, specifically the Seventh-day Adventists. They call these people Sundayists. Because you, you may have heard of them as Sabbatarians from yes. excellent historians like Richard John, Alexis McCrossin, and pretty much any early American religious historian. But the Seventh-day Christians, specifically in the context of the Sunday Mail controversy, the long controversy that lasted through 1912, referred to these agitators as Sundayists. And I choose to reclaim that term. In fact, throughout the 19th century, the term Sabbatarian describes people who observed Sabbath on Saturday. Really? Yes. Because it gets thrown around a lot by colonial and early modern historians talking about Sabbath, you know, yes, hardline Sabbatarianism among, for example, the groups that are today popularly known as Puritans. The, one of their really defining characteristics is this Sunday is the only holiday that you should observe full stop kind of extremism. Exactly. And my term for that is more straightforward. It's Sundayism. It's Sundayist. Okay. And I wrote a blog post about this for USIH, but Sundayist does not The USIH would be the U.S. Yes. intellectual historians for, for our audience, yes? Yes. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying that. And um, the Sundayists are not people who observe Sabbath on Sunday. They do observe Sabbath on Sunday, but the Sundayists are people who want everyone to observe Sabbath on Sunday. So they want to enforce their personal religious preferences on the entire country. Okay. Another change over time is in the world. I haven't fully explored the imperialism angle yet, but the Sundayist language, and this will actually make it easier for me to talk about them now that I've introduced the Sundayists, because that's actually what I call them. But <laughs> by the late 19th century, instead of the Sundayists just saying, 
we want the whole country to observe Sunday Sabbath. It becomes, we need to be an example for the whole world and like civilization. That makes sense. By the early 20th century, the United States had colonies in Puerto Rico and the Philippines and Guam and you know elsewhere. Yes. So rewinding a bit, talking about the first outburst of this controversy, some scholars have argued that the postal controversy beginning in 1810 was a, a real watershed moment in American political culture. What was transformative about this moment? Richard John has the best article on this, Taking Sabbatarianism Seriously, from 1991, in which he literally like makes a case for taking the Sunday mail controversy seriously. And what he argues is that it was central to the development of early American political culture owing to the tactics that they used. So petition drives and specifically using time in church to sign those petitions and then coordinating them to be sent to the U.S. Congress. So really like a, a kind of you know, to use, again, a more modern term, like a sort of grassroots political mobilization. Exactly. And yet predating even then the large-scale organizations like the American Temperance Society, which was a few years later, I think it was 1816. They, they over, yeah, technically a few years later, you're absolutely right, but they overlap a lot. And some right. of my big historical actors in the late Sunday Mail controversy, like the early 19th century, are actually the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So there was a lot of overlap between okay. the temperance activists and the anti-Sunday Mail people. Ah, we'll be hearing from the Women's Christian Temperance Union in a later episode about women's suffrage as well, which they were big boosters of. I will listen to it as soon as it drops. Excellent. One question that scholars of very specific things such as yourself get is, okay, great. So you were talking about the specific Sunday male controversy stretching over the, the 19th century. Paying attention to this, why does this matter? What could this help us see more clearly in American or world history? I'm interested in Sundayism, which is a particular approach to church-state relations, and then Sunday mail, because mail is federal. Mail is uniquely federal, and the early federal state was the post office. So the long history of the Sunday mail debates that I'm telling is about the intersection of this particular relationship between church and state and the early post office. But one thing I really like about my topic is it informs my understanding of lots of different debates today. So just a few months ago, the president was yelling that the post office should be run like a business. And I knew from my research that the Confederate States of America tried to run the post office as a business, and that went poorly. Or just yesterday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley from the Boston area was helping to interrogate the current Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. And she mentioned how black and brown communities staff a huge portion of the post office, of the USPS. I think she said 40%. And there's a long history there. And only through like the real details of the long 19th century is that whole story clear. That's a really good point. Another one that is not directly male related is Saturday laws in Israel. 
fascinate me because they're the exact same thing as Sunday laws in the United States, where one group is trying to enforce their Sabbath on everyone else. Like the Sundayists in the U.S. wanted the male carriers to literally lower the volume of their male whistles that they would sound upon arrival. And when I read that, I just immediately thought of how in Israel, the Jewish majority sometimes coerce the Muslim minority into lowering the sounds of their call for prayer on the Jewish Sabbath Saturday. And then I know that there's another wrinkle of that is in some Muslim majority countries, the governments have instituted basically sort of Sabbatarian laws, but for Friday. And so with, again, the state saying that, you know, this is going to be the official holy day of the week. And so business and other sort of private individuals need to reflect that, whatever their, their private beliefs. So I would call those Fridayists. Oh, fair enough. Cru- <laughs> <laughs> but a crucial difference between theocracies is that they're outright about that. Whereas in the United States, even the Sundayists, always had to claim separation between church and state. They were just defining it differently. Uh, Okay. So did they kind of try and employ language with secular overtones, or at least not particularly explicitly religious arguments? So instead of saying, we need to not run the mail on Sunday to honor God of the Christian Bible, but rather we should do this because everybody deserves a day of rest or something like that. That was definitely one of the arguments. Another one would be that this is just what the majority of the people want. We're not saying that it's a national religion. Some people did say that they wanted it to be the national religion, but on the grounds of majoritarianism, and they would say like, if a different religion was the majority, then they could do what they wanted. And that's only fair. So they still believed in separation of church and state, but they used majoritarianism as a guise in an attempt to really get what they wanted. Now, in terms of mobilizing, did the post office controversy spark increased mobilization and cooperation among the different religious minorities? Did Jews start to collaborate more with, for example, Seventh-day Adventists and other groups or among themselves and engage in public issues, perhaps in ways they hadn't before? A little bit and definitely in ways that they hadn't before because they saw themselves as all Saturday observers. But what I have been increasingly finding is not to the extent that they could, because so Seventh-day Adventists were not around until the 1860s, but as early as the 18-teens, the Seventh-day Baptists were coordinating petition campaigns against the Sundayists, against the predominant petitioners of the Sunday mill controversy. And the Jewish thought leaders were more like printing these in their papers. And there were also some grassroots judicial activism, like court cases, and they would, they would follow each other's court cases. But I think there was a real limit to how much they collaborated with each other directly. And this is seen in the ways that the Seventh-day Baptists describe the Jewish religion. They really see it as something other 
And then the way that the Jewish people talk about themselves is like they can't interfere too much because they're already the underdogs. They don't call themselves underdogs, but they just had extremely limited political capital. And in many cases, they weren't even seen as white yet because of the changing definitions of whiteness over time. So there were a lot of real socio-political limits in the relationship between different kinds of religious minorities and Saturday observers. That's a good point. And arguably by 1912, when the post office stops the Sunday delivery, that might've been the peak era of limiting whiteness in United States history in terms of this extreme racial taxonomizing going on uh, based on various pseudoscientific theories where Italians aren't really white and Jews aren't really white. And, and there's the slicing and dicing of, of humanity into these scientific sounding racial categories. I have not looked into that racial pseudoscience aspect, but something that is similar between the Seventh-day Christians and the Jewish groups throughout the 19th century is their writings are really theologically focused Hmm. in ways that many times the Sundayists were more like even culturally focused. But the Seventh-day Christians see Jewish groups as other, like I mentioned, and they're more focused almost with trying to get other Christians to recognize Saturday as the true Sabbath, whereas the Jewish groups are not proselytizing anyone because they can't. Like, (laughs) they can barely earn the rights to operate their businesses on Sundays. All right, that's a good point. So do you see any other reflections or comparisons between the 19th century political fighting over the mail to uh, more contemporary ones for our own day? I want to really focus in on how yesterday the postmaster general did not know how much a stamp costed because he was so removed from what was really happening in the post office. And That reminded me of in the early U.S. when the federal government legislated for Black people not to be allowed to deliver mail. And that's what the slaveholders wanted. But then on the ground, the enslavers would make the people that they enslaved carry mail anyway. So that tension between what the federal government is saying and what people are actually doing, especially when the people in the federal government have a lot of power, but it's like, then do they really, because it's not all under their control. On that note, were there local Sunday strikes in some areas where the the carriers wouldn't do it? Yes, absolutely. And sorry, I don't have a good example on that because it was really the Protestant Christians who are doing that. And they're not really my focus. There was definitely one big strike in New York. So what, roughly when was that? The early U.S., like the, the Sunday mail controversy of the sure, sure. Republic. Okay, so we're talking like 1810s and 20s when they... Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, interesting. Last two questions for you. What are you up to these days that you are excited about? that our audience should check out. I'm actually excited about really focusing in on my dissertation, which is 
I think approximately halfway written. Um, so I'm really focusing in on that. And I started working full time last week. So I'm just really in a focusing season where I'm working full time and I'm writing my dissertation and I look forward to doing more things again after the dissertation, hopefully in like okay. a year or two. So there's no, okay, because hopefully I was hoping there would be some public facing thing you would want people to. No, just your podcast, Ian. <laughs> Everyone should subscribe to Mainly History. <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> is there, <laughs> that's, that's very kind of you. Uh, is there something else that someone is up to that you were excited about? The... Yes, there is. There is. So for okay. several years, I've had the privilege of being involved in the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. And I was not involved in planning the conference this year, but I've been watching from afar as Sarah Giorgini, uh, who works at Massachusetts Historical Society and conference organizer extraordinaire, has moved the USIH con conference for 2020 online. So it'll actually be from fall 2020 through spring 2021. And the best ways to follow or get involved with that are to join the USIH Facebook group, which is called Society for US Intellectual History, and or the Twitter page, which is ideas underscore history. That sounds great. And yeah, Sarah is a towering intellectual titan. And so I'm really excited to see where she takes things. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for stopping by on Mainly History and giving us a perspective on a different time when the post office was a sort of political pinata. Really appreciate your time, and hopefully you'll come back again soon. Thank you for having me. That's our show. Follow us on Twitter at Mainly History so we can keep you posted about books discussed with our guests, future events they'll be involved with, as well as, of course, our upcoming episodes. Speaking of which, join us next time for the first of several conversations that tackle voting reforms in history. We'll talk with Allison Lang about the visual campaign for women's suffrage a century ago, as well as the work of political artists like Lou Rogers, born and raised in the lumber town of Patton, Maine, whose vivid imagery made the case for women's suffrage in publications from coast to coast. That's next time on Mainly History.